Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast. When I was in college, there was a woman with big glasses named Lana, who I always thought was pretty, but also kind of intimidating. She was dark-skinned with long, dark hair, Jamaican-Jewish, wore lots of lace and smoked a pack a day, and read, constantly read widely, and she wrote poetry over which she labored like I'd never known anybody to labor over their writing. She was also an English major at FIU alongside me, a couple years older. In the spring of my senior year, we were in a class together on the literature of slavery, what the professor would tell us in the final lecture to henceforth describe as the literature of slavery and resistance. And since I was drinking a handle of Ballantine's scotch every week at that time, I went up to Lana one day when I spotted her scribbling in a journal on the second floor balcony of the campus's bookstore cafe and asked if she'd like to come by my dorm that night for a drink. I said, I've only got scotch, but I can get something else. Lana shrugged. Scotch is good. So she comes over and we have some of the very cheap scotch in my living room and I ask her about herself and about her writing and she talks like a pro. She's eloquent and vulgar and long-winded but always considerate, asking again and again if she's boring me with anything, if she needs to shut up. At one point I refill our cups for either the second or third time and she asks if we could maybe go outside so she can smoke. We go downstairs to a stone picnic table on a patch of grass between the laundry room and the swimming pool and she smokes and drinks and talks, divulges everything and all night we sit at about two or three paces apart from each other. This is April of 2013. Finals are coming up. We start hanging out all the time, writing term papers together. I still find her attractive at this point, but we've been talking so much about things that we otherwise have to keep to ourselves, little minutiae about everyday writing stuff, that now, as a result of it, we've cultivated something kind of fraternal. We just take Adderall together in the mornings and write all day and eat very sparingly, and in the evenings we drink either the Carlo Rossi Merlot that I buy in three-liter jugs from Publix at $12 a piece, or the Ballantines or cans of Yingling from one of the massive cases that my roommate brings home, and now and then she spends the night with me in my dorm, in my tiny single-person bed. I wake her up at three in the morning one night to ask if I can put my arms around her, just because there's so little space, and she says that it's fine, and so we do that, and in the morning she tells me that I'm sweet, and that she thinks she's made a feminist of me, although I think my, my question was rooted more in just being intimidated by her and not wanting to get elbowed. But yeah, the feminist thing. Lana was bi and talked a lot about queer politics and introduced me to her group of friends, who were all gay men, and most of them avid socialists, and there was a man among them who'd changed his name to Veronica, and who blinked at me in a dramatic way when I told him that I had just that summer learned what cisgendered meant. Veronica, by the way, was not trans, he just liked the name and the fact that it made straight people uncomfortable. My last exam of that year coincided with the eve of my birthday. Lana brought a bottle of CVS champagne to my dorm and I got really drunk on it. There was another English major writing a paper in my bedroom with Red Bull and beer cans all around him like tombstones. We leave him alone in my bedroom to work on his paper, and we go and we sit on the living room couch. And late that night, when I'm much drunker than Lana, I kiss her. I don't know for how long, but when I lean back, she's all smiles, and she's touching her face in an exasperated way and saying, Fucking finally, dude. And she explains to me that, yeah, she's been having a perfectly good time just hanging out, but Jesus Christ, she wouldn't be sleeping so close to someone if she wasn't attracted to them. I said, but you're always being so physical with your other guy friends, and, and you, you never do it with me, so I figured you weren't interested. And she goes, yeah, I'm physical with the other guys. They're gay. What, they're not going to read anything into it. True enough. I keep drinking and eventually begin to doze off, and so I go and sleep in my bed while the other guy keeps typing a few feet away from me, working on his term paper while I snore and fart and murmur, and Lana, on the living room couch, finishes the champagne that she brought and does a little reading before coming back to bed. When I wake up at nine or so the next morning, Lana's in bed with me, 
and after a stressful stint in the bathroom, I brush my teeth and get back into bed with her, and she wakes up and reminds me of some of the things that had happened the night before, and then we kiss for a while, here and there, but it doesn't progress into anything, which seems a little strange now. Looking back, it seems like this is the point where two college kids might have sex, but we're both super talkative and end up just giggling and gossiping and pontificating and googling things on our phones to win arguments. Eventually that morning, I've got to start getting dressed for a lunch with my mom and my best friend. I want to wear this nacho-colored blazer that I just bought, but Lana sits up in bed and keeps assuring me, emphatically, that it matches with nothing in my wardrobe and that I should be grateful that it doesn't. And at her behest, I set the jacket aside, and looking back, I don't think I ever wore it again. I leave Lana alone in my dorm at around 11am, and when I get back there, at around 2, she's taken a couple of Adderall and written about 10 pages, but she's eaten nothing. In all of our hours together over the past 10 days or so, I haven't seen her eat a single thing. It's a problem that she's open about, and while it's worrisome for an outsider like myself, she assures me, in a way that says the conversation will go no further than this, that her eating disorder used to be a lot worse, and that, seriously, I don't need to worry about it. Lana finishes her finals a few days later. I move out of my dorm and back into my parents' house, and since we're now going to be living, by happenstance, just a few blocks away from each other, over in Pinecrest, Lana says that I'm going to start to see a different version of her, a version that isn't in perpetual academic crisis mode. The house that she's occupying, that happens to be so close to my parents' place, is her grandma's. Lana invites me over night after night, along with a few other friends, but we don't have sex for a while. Finally, it happens when I'm almost annihilated on some very cheap scotch that I brought for the occasion, which, if I remember correctly, was just called Red Label. Not Johnny Walker Red Label, just... Red Label. Anyway, Lana had walked me over to her grandmother's bedroom so that I could get some rest a couple hours earlier. I'd drank a little too much and I was starting to get the spins. When she came back to check on me, a few hours after that, she found me exactly where she'd left me. Half-dressed, because we'd been in the pool all evening, starfishing on the bed, and muttering to myself. In the morning, we'd take a shower together, talking the whole time about what we were going to write that day. I was writing at the time the first novel I'd ever finish, and Lana was then assembling a packet of poetry that would later get her into the grad program of her dreams before the end of the summer. After the shower, I get dressed right away, while she, with her hair assuming a heretofore unseen breadth of curly poof, stays naked after we've dried. She goes naked to the kitchen and fixes coffee, and then she sits naked on the patio with her cigarettes and her journal, comfortable as could be. You'd think, at a glance, that she has nothing to hide. And so far, comparing the post-college Lana to the college Lana, I don't really see any of the differences she'd been forecasting, except for the journal. She had that journal with her constantly. She wrote in that diary while laying in bed, she wrote in it while she was sitting on the couch, while sitting in the car. She was writing in that journal when I met up with her at a coffee shop or a bar. She was putting it away as I said hello, and she was pulling it back out again when I was saying goodbye. I'd occasionally ask what she was journaling about if I happened to be sitting next to her while she was doing it, or maybe at the end of the day, I would ask if she had gotten into anything that she wanted to discuss. And sometimes she would allude to a small topic, something she was remembering about her girlhood or her late grandfather, but for the most part she would just smirk and shrug and tell me that it was private. And that was that. I never saw a page of her journal except to glimpse the density of the writing from over her shoulder or across the table. We were both on OkCupid at the time, and when she found a nice guy with red hair and a beard, we stopped being physical with each other. We had lots more conversations on her grandmother's patio that summer, late at night with the house to ourselves and the suburb all quiet around us. That fall, she moved to New York for grad school. We Skyped a few times, but ultimately fell out of touch. She's still there, I think. I'll probably send her a link to this. The writer David Shields just released a book, a kind of memoir about the delicate S&M that goes on in his marriage. It's called The Trouble with Men. Shields and his wife are in their 60s. They've been married for over 30 years, and when he presented her with the book, they had a very civil conversation about how this was probably the end of their marriage. Then she read the book, twice. She told him the first time that she didn't want it to be published at all, but then she told him that she actually didn't care. 
She just said that she never wanted to speak about it again, never wanted to have to answer a question or confront it. Shields would later say on the Brady Snellis podcast that, considering how short a time we have on this earth, he doesn't plan to leave it with any secrets. When asked if he was prepared to lose his marriage in exchange for the opportunity to explore that marriage honestly in a book, his answer appears to have been yes. <laughs> The other one-night stand I had was with a guy named Jerry. He was a fucking ventriloquist. Like, he worked at Flannies as a busser, and, like, he sold a little weed to pay the bills. But no, like, his thing was ventriloquisting. So we're hooking up. He puts his hands in my pants, and I'm like, oh, a ventriloquist. He'll be good with his hands, you feel me? And, like, yeah, he's good. And so I'm making noise, like, nothing crazy, but, like, so he's doing his thing, and I'm like, oh, whatever, whatever. Like, that feels so good, oh, baby. Then he fucking puts his finger over my lips. Like, he puts his finger on my lips, and he shushes me, and he goes, Just move your lips, mommy. And then he leans real close and says, I'll do the talking. When I was in high school, I dated someone named Linda, who got a small moleskin journal from Books and Books in our senior year when we played hooky for my 18th birthday and spent the afternoon slumming around Coral Gables. I know that we went to a movie in the evening, after dinner with my parents at the same cheesecake factory where, several years later, I would spend nine miserable months working as the host, but I'm looking at the movies that came out on Friday, April 24th of 2009, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't any of these. Anyway, she was, and is, a terrific artist, and also an indiscriminately voracious consumer of music. And so while she filled the first few pages of her moleskin journal with doodles, and her favorite lyrics dressed up in a kind of autumnal calligraphy with her beloved precise V7 felt-tipped pens, she pretty quickly got into the habit of journaling the in the conventional sense. But it was a very efficient kind of journaling, not like Lana's reams of confession and rumination. Linda did her journaling in snippets, tight, self-conscious paragraphs scrawled in minuscule print, sometimes upside down or in the corner of the page. If I ever asked Linda what she was doodling or writing in her moleskin, she would just hand it over. If I asked if I could flip through the pages, she would say yeah. The one journal entry of hers that I remember clearly is the one that she wrote on the p same page where she had wedged a flattened flower. It was a kind of credo. It said that a part of her development as a person would be the total exposure of herself, and that an integral part of that exposure would be to confide her most personal thoughts to this here notebook, which she carried around in her purse, and to then let anyone read it whenever they cared to. People did often ask to see her notebook, and when they came to this page, it kind of sounded like a challenge, and with the author of these secrets sitting right there, prepared to watch them read it, lots of people demurred and handed it back. Had Linda not been in the room, and these people had just sort of stumbled upon her journal and started sifting through the secrets, I'm pretty sure they would have read more than they ultimately did when she was sitting right there. The filmmaker Kevin Smith, whom I adore to no end, is totally candid about his sex life, his bowel movements, his pot smoking, and the resulting density of phlegm that's always getting impacted in the back of his throat. If he's sick while recording a podcast, he'll blow his nose right into the mic. He told a story on film about staring at his wife's asshole while she applied makeup in the nude and just masturbating beside her at the sight of it. He has read embarrassing childhood letters on the podcast and played an embarrassingly over-earnest video message that he recorded for his parents some 30 years ago. He jokes all the time about how small his penis is and about how, after his heart attack, he fought against the doctor's insistence of going up through his groin to put in a stent. He said that even to save his life, he desperately didn't want anyone to see his dick. So he seems pretty exposed. But in a recent interview, somebody asked what his username had been on AOL Instant Messenger. He wouldn't reveal it. Why? Because Smith said that the cybersex he was having with his wife at the time was too embarrassingly kinky, and that he's afraid of somebody hacking it and pulling up transcripts. But how is this different from other embarrassing things that he's revealed? 
maybe the fact that it involves his wife, but he just recently gave careful detail in a Showtime comedy special about a drunken blowjob that she gave him in a hotel room. So clearly she is, to some extent, pretty comfortable with being exposed in his stories. What exactly are the parameters of Kevin Smith's candor? In what ways might a person's honesty and openness actually function as a wall for hiding some larger secret? I've never seen Kim Kardashian West talk openly about the sex tape that made her famous, or at least not about what goes on in the sex tape. This isn't surprising. What surprises me is that everyone seems a little too embarrassed to mention it to her. We saw her in such a naked, vulnerable moment that we, the viewers, somehow probably feel more exposed than she does. I definitely still feel like a kid, but I know that I'm an adult, and that I need to start putting myself out there if I hope to build a career out of writing and podcasting and things like that. The question I've been considering is how much of myself I should reveal. What kinds of confessions will I regret ten years down the line? What sorts of confessions are constructive, and which ones are just exhibitionistic? Will I end up deluding myself into thinking that I'm being artful, when really I'm just trying to seem edgy or to get a rise out of people? I'm talking with somebody that I really like at the moment, somebody I'd like to continue dating. And now here I am putting out a podcast in which I talk in relatively graphic detail about a sexual relationship I had a few years ago. What if that person I'm talking to hears this? Will she be turned off? Will she be annoyed? What if it gets back to my parents? Will they be embarrassed? Is it really my problem if my parents end up being embarrassed by the things I do? Another question. Would a life without secrets be enriched for their absence or impoverished? Does the ceaselessly candid person lose something of their internal self if they're sharing absolutely every thought with the world? I don't know yet. I'll get back to you. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.